You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this morning. The Scripture reading comes in connection with our text from Mark 1. The reading is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 13. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. New things, I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, He will stir up His zeal. With a shout, He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over His enemies. This morning we continue with the second in our series of sermons on the book of Mark. And this morning we come to verses 9 to 13 of chapter 1. Let's now read those verses together. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent Him out into the desert. And He was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended Him. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, every Saturday, the Vancouver Sun has a large section of the paper called Working. 
think at one time it used to be called careers, but now it's called working. If you're on the lookout for a new job, this is one place you might look. Although I'm very happy to be your pastor, and I'm definitely not thinking of a career change, every now and then I I do enjoy browsing through this section. As you look through all the ads, you find that there are often requirements or prerequisites for, for many of the jobs listed. And some of them are quite specialized. I find that interesting. Many of the ads also have a brief description of what the job involves, a so-called job description. Well, in Holy Scripture, we also find a number of job descriptions. We can page through our Bibles and discover what being a king involved or being a judge or a prophet or a priest or any other number of things. But above all, we can also go through the Old Testament and we can find out what being the Messiah the anointed of God, what that would involve. The Old Testament gives what we could call a a job description for the Messiah, the anointed one of God who would redeem His people. We find this especially in the prophets and especially with Isaiah. It's in passages like the one we read from Isaiah 42. In that passage, the Messiah would be the one in whom God delights. He would bring forth justice. He would be a light for the Gentiles. He would open blind eyes. He would bring freedom to captives. All that and so much more. If we go a few chapters further into Isaiah, we get to Isaiah 50. We didn't read that passage. You could read it for yourself later if you want to. In Isaiah 50, we read about how this suffering servant, the Messiah of God, would humble himself before God And man, he would be obedient. Well, hundreds of years passed by and finally the Messiah arrived. He knew his job description and he was going to carry it out faithfully. In his mind, there was no doubt, no question about what needed to be done. He knew that the Old Testament job description for the Messiah required a humbling. And with his incarnation, with his birth, with his youth, he had already set out on this path. No doubt he'd heard that his cousin John was in the desert. He was at the Jordan River baptizing the people of God. He knew that he had to be there too. Jesus' descent into humiliation continues with his formal anointing and his entrance into his earthly ministry. And as we explore all this today, we'll see that this also develops and impacts our earthly ministry as those who share his anointing. And so this morning I preached to you God's word with the theme, Humbling Himself, Christ Enters into His Earthly Ministry. And we'll look first of all at His baptism, and then second, at His temptation. Mark begins this section in a way that reminds us of the Old Testament. He uses the expression, at that time. At that time. These words were carefully chosen to emphasize that what's happening here is sacred history. Just like the history of the Old Testament. It's sacred. It means that it has to do with God's grand redemptive plan. And it's history. It means this 
really happened in space and time some 2,000 years ago. And then all of a sudden, the name Jesus appears again. His name was mentioned already in verse 1 as part of the title of this book. But even there, the details are few. Verse 1 told us that He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is also the Son of God. But apart from that, Mark seems to take it for granted that his readers will know something about the incarnation, about the birth of the Savior. In Mark, the Holy Spirit wants to direct our attention right away to the most important period of our Savior's life. We're told that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew mentions in his account that He came from Galilee, but only Mark mentions his hometown of Nazareth. In last week's text, we we heard about the crowds coming from the big centers in Palestine. They were coming from Judea, from Jerusalem. Now the Messiah appears, and we're told that he comes from Nowhereville. If you look in your liturgy sheet, there is a map, and you can't see where uh, where Nazareth is located. Just a little bit to the west of the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Palestine. It's on this map. But if Jesus hadn't come from there, Nazareth would be just one more forgotten small place in Palestine. If we if we put it in contemporary terms, it was like all the crowds were from Vancouver or from Toronto. And Jesus was from Takla Landing, B.C., a little place that's not even on some maps. He had nothing to his name. No hometown credentials. He was just from a small town in Galilee. And Galilee, you may remember, was the hick region of Palestine. People would make jokes about people from Galilee. Jesus' humble origins set the stage for what happens next. Again, Mark is very selective with the details he wants to emphasize. Now, the other gospel writers, they fill us in on some of the back and forth between the Lord Jesus and John. But Mark just simply tells us he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And for his purposes, this is adequate. In fact, it speaks volumes all by itself. Again, looking back to last week, you'll remember that this baptism of John was something that the the Jews would have been familiar with. When Gentiles wanted to become followers of the Jewish religion, one of the things that they had to do was to be baptized. But along came John. And John said it was the Jews who needed to be baptized, not the Gentiles. The Jews were dirty and unclean. The Jews were unprepared for the coming of the Christ. Being baptized by John involved humbling yourself before God and your neighbor. It was this baptism that the Lord Jesus received. And of course, by Himself, the Lord Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He wasn't dirty. He wasn't unclean. But by being baptized by John, he was associating himself with the people who were. 
He was identifying himself with their situation. He was humbling himself before God and his people. The divine Son of God, perfect and holy, took the baptism of John and in so doing pointed ahead to what he would do in his suffering and in his death. He would take on all the sins of the people and become sin for them. He humbled himself now. And later, he would humble himself to the deepest shame and anguish imaginable, taking our sin, our shame, our hell. Brothers and sisters, look at this text. Look at the Lord Jesus in the water of the Jordan. Fix the eyes of your mind on Him. It's the picture of Joshua passing through the river and bringing the people of God into the promised land. This is your Savior. What a Savior He is. He became sin for you. He became what He was not so that you would become what you are not. He became sin so that you would be righteousness before God. His humbling and His baptism pointed to His willingness to do that for you. His love for you. As you reflect on those wonderful thoughts, doesn't that fill you with praise? Doesn't that fill you with love and thankfulness? Verse 10 tells us that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, He saw heaven being torn open. Again, Mark is using Old Testament language and imagery. Specifically, he seems to be thinking of Ezekiel 1 verse 1, where Ezekiel saw the heavens open and he saw visions of God. The tearing open of the heavens means that this is a divine revelation. Something that has been previously hidden is about to be revealed, about to be laid open for everyone to see and hear. Not everyone will necessarily believe it, but they will see it and they will hear it. And the first thing that was seen was the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. If you do a word study, you'll find that the dove has a number of connotations or associations in the Bible. In the Song of Songs, for instance. In that book, doves are associated with love. Look in the book of Genesis. We have Noah. He sent out the dove three times after the flood. Doves, too, were part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Doves are symbolic of love, new life, of creation, or you could say recreation, innocence, sacrifice, All these things seem to be bound up in this image. As an aside, in our mind's eye, we we often think that this would have been a, a white dove. Perhaps that's because of various artistic representations of the scene. However, the text does not tell us that the dove was white. In fact, most of the doves in Palestine were rock doves. Rock doves are just your regular pigeons. 
exactly the same as we have around here. And if you look, you find that very, very few of our pigeons around here are white, pure white. And as I was walking out to get the mail last week, I saw a couple of rock doves, a pair of them perched on the roof of our house. I looked at them because I'd just been working on this text. And it occurred to me that as the Spirit descended on the Lord Jesus, He chose to appear like one of these birds, probably in that color. Now, we think the image should be of a white dove. The Bible doesn't tell us that. In in fact, perhaps the ruddy gray, iridescent rainbow appearance of many rock doves, if you look carefully at their feathers, they often have kind of a rainbow appearance to them. It might even be more appropriate than white. Rainbow makes you think of the flood. Again, but hey, that's an aside. And while it's worth thinking about, worth reflecting on, it's not critically important to the text. More important is the meaning and message of what was taking place there at the Jordan. Christ was being anointed with the Holy Spirit. We know that from Peter's words in Acts 10.38. Peter says about this time, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Let's be clear about what happened here. It's not as if the Lord Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit before this moment. As the Son of God, He had union with the Father and with the Spirit from all eternity. At His anointing, it was publicly announced by God that this was the Messiah. This was Israel's prophet, priest, and king. Our prophet, priest, and king. Here is the one for whom John was preparing the way. Here was Israel's hope and expectation in the flesh. Not only that, but his anointing, it also signified the beginning of his earthly ministry. Just like presidents and prime ministers begin their rule with some sort of inauguration ceremony. It's the same here with the Lord Jesus. This was his inauguration And we have union with Him. We have union with Him by faith and by the working of the Holy Spirit. That means that we share in His anointing. Just as He is prophet, priest, and king, so are we. And in the past, as we've heard sermons on Lord's Day 12, we've heard about what that involves. We've heard the the job description. And no doubt, as we begin another series on the Heidelberg Catechism next week, we're going to hear more about it again in the future. For now, just note that those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, are so essential to understanding who Christ is, to understanding what He does, to understanding who we are in Him. In fact, as you read your Bibles and as you try to understand what it means for your life, it's often helpful to think in terms of those categories. Prophet, priest, and king. So for instance, when you're in the Old Testament, you might ask whether a given character is acting as prophet, priest, or king. 
How does he or she point to Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king? And then you develop what the text means for you out of the fact that you are in Christ, that you have union with Him. Our union with Christ is also significant as we consider verse 11. Not only was there the the visual aspect, there was the image of the dove, there was also a, a voice heard, voice of God. He said, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Well, clearly this was God the Father speaking. He made this announcement so that the world would know that this is the Son of God. The Son of God who is loved and who pleases the Father. All those there at that moment would have heard that the relationship between the Father and the Son is defined by love. They would have heard that the Son in His humility is humbling Himself by taking on this baptism, His obedience, and all that. He was pleasing His Father. That's understandable when we consider that when the Son was taking on the anointing, He was taking on something that would propel Him into His ministry, including His obedience, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and then finally His ascension. The Son did not balk And this pleased the Father. What happens here is meaningful for us in at least three ways. First off, this is pure gospel. The good news here is that we have a perfect Savior. Here's the one who can carry the load of our sin and our guilt. Here is the one who's been perfectly obedient for us. Here's the one who can save like no other can. So brothers and sisters, let's fix our eyes on Him. Then in the second place, remember your union with this Savior. Because you're united to Him, God also speaks these words in our text to you. He said it at your baptism. And he still says it today. It's amazing, isn't it? Clinging to Christ in true faith, the Almighty, Holy God says to you, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Hear his voice to us this morning. We sin each day, but because we are in Christ... He loves us. He is pleased with us. We are accepted in the Beloved. Amazing. We may not always feel like this is the case, but the Word of God stands true. Martin Luther had a little ditty about this. Ditties about other things, but he had one about this too. Of course, he he wrote his little ditty in German, but somehow somebody made it sound good in English too. It goes something like this. Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the Word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. 
If you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that he struggled with doubts, questions, had to remind himself repeatedly to flee to Christ and His Word. Perhaps you have the same struggle. Brothers and sisters, don't trust your feelings. Don't build your faith on feelings. Trust Christ. Look to Him and hear the voice of God to Him and to you. You are my son, my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And you know what? It's objectively true whether you feel it or not. It's pure gospel, isn't it? It's so beautiful and it's so true. And believing that is going to impact our lives and our relationships. We cannot but. And that's the third thing. When we are in Christ, God the Father speaks words of affirmation, love, and encouragement to us. How now shall we live? Wouldn't it just be natural for us to do the same with others? I'll think here especially of our children. Now how sad it is when you see families in the world who never affirm and who never encourage their children. How much more sad when you see families in the church who do the same, who never even say, I love you, to their children. How sad. Because they know the love of the Father in Christ. Because they have heard Him speak in loving words. Families in the church should know better. Now, sometimes people have this strange idea that affirming and encouraging our children will make them have fat heads. That it will make them prideful if we praise them. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters, the exact opposite is true. We create a culture of pride when we do not encourage, support, and affirm one another. Because if no one else builds you up, you're going to be tempted to do it for yourself. Look again to your Savior, to Christ. He's more humble than we can fathom. Yet the Father affirmed Him and encouraged Him. And when you read His letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation, you see the Son of God and you hear His voice affirming and encouraging the churches where He can just like His Father did in our text. And sure, there are also some necessary words of admonition. Nevertheless, there is also praise. So do we know better than God? Brothers and sisters, living out of our union with Christ, let's take every opportunity we can to encourage, to praise and support one another. And let's especially do this with our children. And maybe you're wondering why this is important. Why would we want to do this? Because how we relate to our children and to one another to a lesser degree affects how they relate to their Heavenly Father. And how they relate to their Heavenly Father, that affects His glory. 
And His glory is the reason we're here. His glory is the reason why we've been saved. Let's now move on and consider the second scene in our text, that of the temptation of the Lord Jesus. And once again, compared to the other Gospels, Mark is unbelievably brief. The action moves right along. One moment, the Spirit is descending upon Jesus, and the next moment, Mark says, right away, the Spirit is sending Him out into the desert. Rather than fill in all the details from the other Gospels, as we might be tempted to do, we have to take Mark at face value. What is the specific message that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us here at this place in Scripture? And the desert figures significantly here. John was in the desert, and now Christ is sent out into the desert. Again, if you have a look at the map, the desert we're speaking about is on the western shore of the Dead Sea. You can see some hills there. Those are the uh, Judean hills. And between the Judean hills and the Dead Sea, you would find the Judean desert. This is likely the place where Christ's temptation took place. And as we heard last week, the desert was the place that Israel had to pass through on their way to redemption in the promised land. That pattern is continued with Christ in our text. You could say that Jesus is reenacting the exodus from Egypt. And as Israel was out in the desert, and they were being tempted and often failed, so Jesus is now out in the desert being tempted. And He does not fail. This raises the question of whether He could fail. Some say that because He is the Son of God, because He is God, it was impossible for Him to give in to temptation. Maybe you thought the same. However, is it a true temptation if you cannot possibly give in to it? Isn't it then just an apparent temptation? book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every respect, just like we are, except without sin. For that to be meaningful, it had to be a real temptation. For his humiliation to be meaningful, it had to be a real temptation. In other words, he could have failed. He was really tempted. But unlike Israel, he did not give in. This is important. This gives us comfort because he really does know what we're experiencing when we're tempted. He knows what it's like to be drawn to to lusts and desires of various sorts. He knows what it's like to have the demonic carrot dangled in front of your nose. You have a Savior who knows and understands. Moreover, you have a Savior who withstood the temptation. And in so doing, He pays for all the times that you have not. And being in Him, you too will stand more and more as your sanctification progresses. Mark tells us that this scene took place over 40 days. 
doesn't necessarily mean that he was tempted each day, 24 hours a day, for 40 days. He was in the desert for 40 days, and during this time, he faced the temptations of Satan. And perhaps this was a a 24-hour-a-day thing, but it would be too much to insist on that from the text. Point is, it was 40 days. And as you know, that's a number we find more often in the Bible. It's usually connected with important events in redemptive history. Think of the, the flood again. The rain fell for 40 days. The waters also subsided for that amount of time. Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. King David and King Solomon each reigned for 40 years. It's a number of fullness with respect to a variety of people and a variety of offices. Prophets, priests, and kings. And therefore, it's appropriate for the Christ, the anointed one, to be in the desert for this period of time. Now, a detail that's not found elsewhere in the Gospels is the mention of wild animals in verse 13. Why does the Spirit lead Mark to include this? Well, there could be a connection here with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Then Christ is the second Adam in the desert. The first Adam was tempted in a a garden of comfort and safety. There didn't appear to, to be any threats. All was lush and green and wonderful. Food was readily at hand. That was the first Adam. The second Adam was tempted in a scene of abandonment and danger. The very opposite of the first Adam. Perhaps that's what Mark is trying to communicate with this detail. At any rate, we can see it as being indicative of the isolation that the Lord Jesus experienced in his temptation. He had to go it alone. Now Mark doesn't really come out and tell us explicitly what the outcome was. It's like he expects us to know, either from elsewhere in the Bible or from what follows. We're expected to know that the Lord Jesus was victorious. His victory over Satan here was yet another battle in the war between the serpent and the woman. And that war would ultimately be won at Golgotha. For now, we see a whimpering Satan being robbed of his power and dominion. He cannot stop the conquering Christ. And after the battle is over, God shows His providential love and care by by sending angels to minister to Christ. We're not told what exactly those angels did, but we can reasonably infer that they would have given some kind of nourishment to Him. The angels were a sign that the Father still loved His Son and would care for Him. And for us today, looking back, we know the fullness of Christ's victory. Because of His victory, we are declared right before God. We are made holy in God's eyes. Because of this victory, we are growing in holiness as we live our lives each day on this earth. As we live here, we also people in Christ, we can be assured of God's love and care for us. And He exercises that care in a number of ways. And one of those ways is the angels. 
Some Christians have the idea that each believer has a guardian angel. Scriptural reality is far better. We have hosts of angels watching over each one of us. You see that in in that psalm we sang, Psalm 91. And think also of what it says in Hebrews 1.14. tells us there that the angels are there to serve, not only to serve God, but to serve us. Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The good news this morning includes the fact that God is caring for you through His angels, just as He cared for His Son in the desert. As we go through our pilgrimage here on this earth, through this country that is not our own, we have the angels leading us and supporting us. Brothers and sisters, the baptism and temptation of our Savior were necessary steps in His humiliation. Part of His work for us. And when we reflect on these steps, and we'll continue to do that as we keep on going through this book, watch what it does to your heart and to your life. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, watch how God will change you how He'll mold you, how He'll make you into somebody new, into the person God wants you to be. He will do it. We will praise Him for it, now and forevermore. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.